Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. The great international development thinker, Susan Pearl, has described three legs of the global health stool, government, the private sector, and the non-private sector. And in this episode, we will focus on that third leg, the nonprofit sector, what it is, how it works, and how sometimes it doesn't work. Well, I'm joined by Jean Bell, a C-suite strategy consultant to many leaders in the US nonprofit movement. She was CEO of Compass Point Nonprofit Services for over 11 years, and she now works as a consultant to the Nonprofit Quarterly, writing articles and producing webinars for nonprofit leaders that are pushing forward the values of equity and justice. Jean, welcome to A Shot in the Arm. Thank you, Ben. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's a real honor to have you, and perhaps we can start by looking at your upbringing and education. What on earth got you interested in equity and human rights? Well, I'm the child of Jesuits and teachers, <laughs> so I think I was set on a course before I knew it. Um, I remember my mother dropping me off to volunteer at the Catholic Old People's Home, as we called it then, uh, some few blocks from my um, the apartment I grew up in in San Francisco. Um, so it's been in my blood uh, for a long time. I was also very influenced early on by images and not so much stories, but images uh, and television in particular about the civil rights movement. Um, so I was kind of surrounded by it and I was surrounded by teaching for sure as not just a practice, but a value almost. Now, you went to UC Berkeley and studied ethnic studies. Uh, what did that involve? I'm, I, I'm so curious because as part of my undergraduate theology degree, I read anthropology and, and had to focus on uh, Levi Strauss's structured review of cargo cults, which even back in the late 80s was just so horrifically patronizing. So ethnic studies, what was it? Well, UC Berkeley was one of the, you know, early leaders in ethnic studies, along with San Francisco State and, and other programs. And it was a wonderful experience. Uh, it made a huge university very small. And essentially, there were colleges associated with Native American studies, African American studies, Asian American studies, uh, Latinx studies. So you got to sort of comprise a major. And, and I focused particularly on reading African literature. Um, but you could sort of put that put it together the way you wanted to. And it was a very uh, thriving environment to be in. And it's interesting because at the time, I think I went into Berkeley thinking I wanted to be a teacher and there was something about the political environment and the draw of studying cross-culturally that, that made me kind of widen my lens a bit from teaching into the nonprofit sector more broadly. And, and so then on to your career, you are uh, you are the CEO of Compass Point for 11 years. <clears throat> what got you into nonprofit service and consultancy support? Yeah, I think it was, it, it really was my first job, you know, out of college was at Planned Parenthood and I had volunteered there. So again, that thread of sort of personal experience and then envisioning my work somewhere in what I would now call civil society, of course, didn't call it that at age 21. Um, and I pretty quickly realized that I was interested in the mechanics or, again, what we would now call the infrastructure of, of this work. And so pretty quickly, um, I got into a master's program at the University of San Francisco and ended up meeting one of my mentors who ran Compass Point at the time, which I didn't know what that meant. 
Um, but, you know, as things unfold that way, you're sort of drawn by your appetites in a way that you don't fully understand. And I, I found my way to Compass Point just having turned 30 and was there, you know, seven or eight years before I became the CEO. So I, I just kind of traveled towards that infrastructure, that capacity building, that teaching, that management side of the nonprofit sector pretty quickly. And now you consult for the nonprofit quarterly. Um, you write articles. Um, you advise, uh, and, and all around building a leadership that that uh, establishes these two values of equity uh, and justice. Um, what does that involve? Well, frankly, it's it's extremely complicated, <laughs> and uh, I think we're at a, a time. Um, in the sector of, a, as we are in our larger society of deep reckoning, especially in historically white-led spaces like the majority of the nonprofit sector and philanthropy. Um, and as a white leader myself who went through that journey at Compass Point of um, being part of an organization that had a history of sort of the kind of language of best in class and thought leader and all of that kind of language and having people come into the organization and say, what does that mean? <laughs> How is that helping affect social change? Um, and not that we weren't affecting social change, but there was a strong challenge to the sort of foundational principles of capacity building and support. So I've been living in that milieu for, you know, more than a decade now um, of sort of actively reckoning with why are we doing this? What supports do folks actually need to be relevant? So a lot of it's about relevancy and about the sort of philosophy of whether how we are inside organizations matters to what impact we'll have outside them, which is an open question, but a very active one. Well, which gets us absolutely into the role of nonprofits. I mean, I grew up in the UK where charities, in inverted commas, were what you gave a few pence or pounds to when you wanted to feel like you were doing some good, whether it was food on the plates of a homeless, a place to keep the mentally and physical, physically ill occupied and separate, uh, or, or even to give nice, clean white Land Rovers to happy, grateful Africans. There was a strong sense of uh, philanthropy, and, and I guess absolutely you could see it in the non-conformist religious business leaders of the 19th century, someone like Cadbury, for example. But nowadays, and particularly after the post-war compact, this, this sense that it is really the government's role to do the real work. Um, and we all have, I still have this, this sense that the government's responsibility is to look after us from the cradle to the grave. But here in the US, it's a very, very different philosophy. And, and I'm really interested to know, from your perspective, what the uh, what is the essential model that underpins U.S. social change movements? Well, I mean, I think, again, that that three-legged stool that you mentioned um, was pretty ingrained in those of us who grew up in the notion of the nonprofit sector as a third sector. It's sometimes called the third sector, right? Um, I don't actually think that's at odds with your basic premise that government is supposed to look after us from <laughs> cradle to grave. So I think, you know, particularly in the progressive elements of the sector, I would hope not to see those as as oppositional ideas that that, that the government is, in fact, uh, ought to be invested in our health and safety. Um, and I'm using the word safety from a in, a in a healing way in our health and wellness. I I think. Um, what has happened, and we all know the history of Reaganomics in our in our country and the sort of outsourcing of government work to nonprofits, the outsourcing of social services. And 
you know, there have been good things about that and certainly um, potentially negative things about that as well and more than we can <laughs> go into here. But I think the reality now is we're much more versed in looking at the nonprofit sector as many sectors. It, mm -hmm. It's inclusive of direct human services, but certainly not limited to it. And it is, especially with 501c4s, uh, it is a place of advocacy and including advocacy, you know, that is pushing the government. So, the problem with the three-legged stool, if you if you simplify it too much, it makes it seem like it's a nice, happy puzzle. There are aspects of the nonprofit sector that are meant to challenge and question the government and the private sector, right? On the other hand, the human service side is often very dependent on government and private sectors. So you have some you have some lines and, and crossing across that three-legged stool. Maybe it's the the braces that cut across the bottom. They're not all moving in the in the same direction, and, and they ought not to be, right? Um, so all that to say, social movements, I think, and, uh, you know, people much smarter than me about them, you know, really start often outside of the three-legged stool. And there are nonprofits, um, especially advocacy nonprofits and movement building nonprofits that can, um, help accelerate that work, communicate that work, right? Raise money around that work. Um, but it has to be in concert with non-organizational, organizational entities like actual social movements churches, et cetera. So we've come out of an era of some really significant social movements. I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, Stop Asian Hate. How have these affected the way nonprofits have either advocated or provided services to communities? Um, well, and I would say, you know, not to quibble, but we're still in those, I would say. And, and they are having, a, I think, an enormous effect. Some of the effect is existential. So, and it speaks to what I was just saying. The leaders that I work with who were not born as movement building or base building organizations are challenged by the demands of these, of these movements. The Black Lives Matter movement in particular has a detailed plan for you know, the economy, the environment, et cetera. So there's a, there's a, a significant challenge, if you will, coming from that left flank that, you know, seriously challenges, um, the theories of change and practices of more traditional or mainstream nonprofits. So the first, my first answer is there's an existential challenge to more institutionalized organizations who are, again, very dependent on relationships with the rest of that stool, uh, government and private sector, and therefore, almost by design, more tacit in how they're going to move forward. So the first first answer is existential. The other is, I think it's just having, those movements are having a huge effect on hearts and minds uh, across mm. society. So it's changing young people's expectations. It's changing donor patterns in some cases. I think it's even changing institutional philanthropy. I think it's putting the same kind of existential pressure on institutional philanthropy, at least in the U.S., to be more responsive, more bold, more distributive in its kind of ethos. And and I, I think it would be good to just sort of pause on the whole concept of philanthropies for a second. I mean, it's, it is part of that stool that the architecture of which is now, I suppose, becoming a little bit complicated. <laughs> but, but philanthropies, um, you know, in, in the world of global health, philanthropy has really been dominated by a few large, very large foundations with very specific agendas. But when I've been talking with you in the field of social change, the reverse appears to be happening. Uh, do, do you see that social movement trends are inspiring um, 
foundations and philanthropists to support uh, nonprofits that advocate and service in the way that social change demands? I do. I mean, probably the most uh, shiny example is Mackenzie Scott's last two rounds of giving, right? We saw that's an unprecedented approach to giving, not only the the quickness and the scale of it, but the the range of often BIPOC-led and serving organizations that she and her team were able to find, right, and get large amounts of money to relatively quickly, um, certainly compared to some of her peers uh, in the Billionaires Club and, and their approaches to philanthropy. And there's a whole set of problematic things, of course, about individuals having such wealth and such power to distribute it pretty much sight unseen. There's also a lot in that, though, about her her approach, as I said, to finding and funding not just the big guys and the traditional guys. And I think that's that's kind of the signal that I'm talking about. Within more traditional foundations, the fact of the matter is progressive foundations are hugely significant to social change nonprofits. When people say things like, well, government's the big funder of nonprofits, foundations shouldn't get so heady. They're just a small wedge of what funds the sector. That's true on a macro level because health and human services and education are the biggest wedges. But in terms of who funds uh, social justice, uh, that is often progressive nonprofit, uh, progressive philanthropies. And what I think is exciting is to see them get bolder, get more committed to unrestricted funding, more committed to capacity building and leadership development. It's been a slow journey, but you see a lot of momentum there. And finally, you also see a number of newer philanthropic intermediaries who are run differently than traditional philanthropies that either had family boards or sort of almost corporate type boards. You have intermediaries like Groundswell Fund in, in the reproductive justice space, which is now the largest funder in reproductive justice, who are being, these, these philanthropy intermediaries are being led by and the decision making is done by people impacted, people who are community organizers, giving millions and millions of dollars. So these are no longer kind of marginal experiments. They're affecting the philanthropic infrastructure and certainly the funding of social justice movements. And, and from what you're saying, I sense that a, a movement from let us tell you what we think you should do to let us give you the money for you to decide what you need to do in order to fulfill your mission. Right. And, and that has been the parlance the whole time I've been in this sector. It has not been the practice. Right. Right. So what we're seeing is again, and I would argue it's because of the social pressure, uh, that has come from the, the left side, from that flank, from that movement building aspect of the sector. We are, people are being held accountable to their words. And when you say things like we are community centered or grantee driven or we don't have grantees, we have partners. Well, now people are saying, how is this a partnership? If you tell me exactly how to spend the money <laughs> and you pretend to know from your boardroom what are, we're hearing on the ground. So that all that language is not new. What we're seeing is finally, I think, the practices coming to a little bit more scale of trusting and, and using the money uh, to get to the people who are closest to the solutions. And and it can also be the other way around, can't it? It's not just social change. I mean, in, in theory, these very same shifts 
could enable philanthropists, third parties and non-profits that, that have a very different view of social change, who perhaps want to protect certain values, certain cultures. And I'm thinking particularly about uh, religion. We spoke with um, a Nigerian activist recently who you know, reported on the, the broad support that was coming from white Protestant churches for, for very restrictive social, religious-based policymaking in Nigeria. Um, and I suppose I'm also thinking about, you know, white nationalism, although it could also apply to other uh, cultures as well. Have you seen um, as much uh, of a shift in that movement? Um, well, I don't watch that movement <laughs> too closely, <laughs> uh, other than to stay as clear from it as I can. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I think there, we all, we, people have been talking about the Koch brothers and how well-structured and well-financed the right has been almost, you know, ahead of the left, if you will, if you want to use those hard binaries in the U.S. for a long time. And part of what you and I are talking about is the progressive part of the sector and of civil society getting serious about funding itself and funding its leadership. So some that argument that the right has been doing that for a long time, sometimes through religious means or others, you know, has been around. I don't know that the sophistication that you and I are talking about in terms of an actual social change, theory of change, is there, um, but I could be wrong. You know, I, I, there's no doubt that they, they raise a lot of money and they fund local elections and they fund local school boards and they fund, you know, they're creating a, a non-issue out of critical race theory, which none of them can define, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so, yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of money flowing. Um, I don't think it's quite as... I don't think it's exactly the same as what we're seeing in the the hundreds of the networks of progressive philanthropies that are trying to fund social change. So I, I want to come back to those uh, progressive uh, networks because um, as as well as the investment strategy, there's an impact on people of privilege working uh, to promote social change. It's certainly something that is applied uh, to both you and me. Um, you know, the, the goal, not only of asking communities what they need and how they can be funded, we're actively promoting and need to promote the leadership of people of colour, particularly to lead non-profits. And it's, it's not just because if those non-profits serve people of colour, it just makes more sense uh, for, uh, for the communities affected to lead the organisations established uh, to support them. I think there's a, there's a, a sort of a fundamental historical moment, if you like, where the experience of fighting stigma and discrimination directly is much more important for leadership at this stage than being an ally. What's your sense of this? I think you're right. And this is probably the central issue that when I talked about the existential crisis that that's going on in, in more traditional nonprofits, this is part of it. And I think there's been some kind of uh, placating language you know, in, in, oh, there's abundance, there's enough for everyone. It's not about anyone having to step down. I disagree with that. It is actually about a lot of people having to step down uh, or at least step over. Um, I, I think if we, again, the lip service of a phrase like lived experience, we value lived experience. So, you know, for 20 years, that has crept on to the job announcements of every, right? And some job, not some nonprofits have slowly taken education requirements off of job announcements and replaced that with lived experience, right? You see these incremental, and I'm not minimizing them, but these incremental sort of tactical steps. 
at the end of the day, do we, to your point, do we truly believe that people with lived experience are going to produce better, more relevant outcomes and programs? Um, that, I think that's, you know, I, I, do we, do we believe that? Uh, do we believe that this is only an issue of values and representation? Um, do we believe that there's a form of reparations almost of sort of decentering this kind of nonprofit industrial complex leadership group and giving another group a chance that's been, you know, consistently marginalized? Those are all three different points. Mm. So where we are in the dialogue right now is really unpacking that. And at an organizational level, if you're trying to go through that change to center directly impacted people or lived experience, it's a slow slog of, of philosophical questions and practical questions and tactical questions. But for you and I, I think it does often mean stepping aside and reevaluating our role. It doesn't mean we can't play a role, but recognizing that we don't have the lived experience to speak directly to uh, the issues that have been so chronic in our society. There's a, a really good example, and, and Congresswoman Barbara Lee uh, was on the show last year talking about this, where uh, when federal funding finally went to aid service organizations that were going to serve African-American communities, they found that the capacity to dump the money in straight away had to be in organizations that were led by gay white men. And, and while we gay white men have absolutely had very real stigma and discrimination to fight against, and I'm, and I'm absolutely not interested in a stigma index of who's more discriminated than others, but there really is a problem here, and we have to be conscious of the risk of this continuing. Um, the activist Ace Robinson has called me out on this many, many times. Um, I asked him to join me on the podcast to talk more about it, and I'm looking forward to welcoming him back soon. But his point is that you don't need an African-American telling you that this is wrong. You know it's wrong. Own it. And what are you going to do about it? And, and this is where I found conversations with Eugene so, so interesting. Do you think the nonprofit movement is, is finally moving in the right direction? Probably not fast enough, but, but is there traction there? I think there is traction. Um, definitely, especially, you know, it's regional. We have to be, we have to recognize that as the politics of our, our, of this country are regional in many ways, uh, this is a, a fractal of that. So I don't want to speak as if there's a, consistent global experience of, of the pace of change, because there isn't. Um, but in, in groups that have been giving it lip service or stating it as aspiration or stating it val as values, I see we are mo making movement from the values list to the practices list, whether that's mm -hmm. hiring, promotion, leadership development, uh, program design, even methodologies. If you look at methodologies like universal basic income, for instance, we're seeing more and more groups. That's a form of trusting people. Right? We call it like there's trust-based philanthropy, there's trust-based programming, right? Give people what they want. Let's try that. As Mayor Tubbs uh, said in Stockton, who was yeah. one of the, the four former, the biggest leaders on universal basic income. So those are all signs to me that people are starting to think differently than just programming to, right? Actually, giving people what they need, whatever that means, whether it's staff, clients, uh, communities. I think there's no doubt there's traction, but we are in kind of a new zone. And the nonprofit sector has so many habits and practices, whether it's the funding model, the governance model, the executive leadership model, that frankly are kind of at odds with just giving people what they need. 
And there's a, there's another aspect to this. You've touched on it, and it it would be good for us to be a little more direct and explicit about it. It, it is difficult for both you and me as nonprofit leaders for much of our careers in this new this new environment. You said it, we need to step away from applying for jobs, which in theory, we would be the apex of our careers as leaders of nonprofits. And, you know, it's tough to say, I, I certainly experience it. It is harder for us to get high level jobs in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I confess that's exactly what drove me and the board of directors of Pangea to shutter uh, the headquarters and move programs and investments to Zimbabwe and China. But but we really need to own this and enthusiastically welcome it, not, not, notwithstanding how hard it might be. I agree with that, you know, and I think it's situational. I think that when I'm talking with BIPOC colleagues and uh, when I was an executive director, there was definitely a tension. I felt a tension between the macro issue of, yes, you should move on. This, you know, the, there's plenty of... of talent and it's time for someone else to have a chance and also a recognition that me and people like me have set up this this structure and know how to play it right and so it's not about abandonment or dropping everything right in the middle and saying well here you take it <laughs> there has to be i think our role in part is to use our power and our experience in this infrastructure to help others step into it, and also to say the things that people don't want to say about what needs to change about it, because we aren't CEOs anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, to me, I feel a lot of freedom and also a responsibility to use that power, that little tiny bit of power I have because of that resume or those relationships, and say, you know what, this was kind of a setup. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a reason that this white woman got her, that job at 30 years old that someone else may never get in their lifetime, right? Let's be, and it's not just because I can write or because I care, or, you know, I mean, you can point that that's ridiculous, right? So it's not, to me, it's not unsafe to talk about unearned privilege. It doesn't negate my skills or commitment. And I think there's a lot of roles for us that are, potentially senior roles, C-suite roles, but that are really specific to what that organization needs and where the leadership needs to come from. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the acronym uh, BIPOC, mm -hmm. B-I-P-O-C. Can you just break that down for us? What is that? Uh, that's Black Indigenous People of Color. So it's, it's sort of unpacking that and then putting it back together as a larger set. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of, there's always and should be ongoing discussion about how to articulate what we're talking about, but that's, that's currently, um, a language that I'm using and that I see a lot of people using so that black and indigenous folks are not lost, uh, and neither are other communities. And I, I know we in the United States see this very much in a, uh, political lens, but, um, or a left or right lens. Um, but, but, uh, this will make her laugh. I just want to give a shout out to my parents, both, uh, and my mother, of course, who are both horrendous 
British conservatives, um, and 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 our conversations really centre around how relatively well Boris Johnson is doing under the circumstances, which, by the way, tells you everything you need to know about how bad a prime minister is. And of course, it drives me up the wall. But the one life lesson they instilled in me from birth, the strongest belief, I think, of anything that I've got, that no one is any different from anyone else unless they're a member of the Labour Party, which, of course, I was for a long time. But the point here is that there is a unity and a solidarity that underpins uh, everybody, no matter where they are, no matter what they do in life. And and part of what we're trying to do with that, uh, th the current iteration of the social change movement, is to sort of find ways of embracing and growing that. Do you see that in the United States as well? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's what the, those movements that you, you know, enumerated that are helping lead the way for us. That's what they talk about. They, they talk about solidarity, right? They, they say, uh, you know, when, when black women have what they need, we'll all have what we need in the United States. They're not only concerned <laughs> that black women have what they need. What they're saying is if, if we can do this, this is part of the whole humanistic movement, right? Um, and there's even that terminology, humanistic management. So even coming back to the relatively banal work I do of organizational change, yes, the humanism is is what we're trying to get back to. Um, and we've been mimicking a corporate culture as best practice for so long that, you know, almost explicitly is not about that, if not very implicitly, right? So it is unfortunate that we have to almost relearn, unlearn and relearn how we want to function, at least in this, going back to the leg of the school, as a way of practicing and modeling what we want to see in the world, right? And I think those movement leaders, when you listen to them, when you listen to abolitionists, when you listen to people talk about those issues, they're not niche issues. They're not talking about them in very narrow, you know, they're certainly not talking about it, as the right would say, in identity politics. They're talking about human evolution and, and, and truly believing in every human being and taking care of human being. That's true in all of the quote movements if you look at the leading edge. So absolutely solidarity is, is fundamental to that. And unfortunately, again, we have to reiterate that organizational life is often set up in a competitive frame. Um, and that's a challenge to, to work in a competitive model towards solidarity. Now, see, so, so one last question, and I really want to pick you up on this. Uh, Gene, um, much of what we've done, certainly in my career over the last 20 years, has to try and apply the lessons of the private sector to nonprofits. How can we do things better, more efficiently, vis-a-vis -vis doing things the way business does? And, and, and that hasn't always worked. And I get the sense from what you're saying is that, well, we'll know the whole hypothesis is wrong. The whole axiom is wrong. It's not taking a commercial approach to social change that is going to make change. I think, again, I'm, I'm just a student of those who are leading in these movements, but the big terminology now in social change is narrative change, right? So it's, it's literally changing our story about how we got here and why we're here. That is not done, <laughs> you know, only through, and I know what people think, good, that's marketing, right? No, it's something much deeper. It's actually person to person communication and storytelling and a whole different approach to trying to engage people in why this actually does matter to them. So 
uh, I was just on a webinar with Chanel Matthews, who is the communications director for the Movement for Black Lives. And she was adamant. Uh, and she runs an organization called RadComs, which is a platform for radical communicators all across the country. It's worth looking up if that's of interest to you, this narrative change work. But, you know, she said, I, I'm not looking at data the way they tell me to look at data. You know, I'm not doing smart data or you know, I'm not a quant, right? Of course, our movement is growing, but I'm judging that growth by changes in hearts and minds and changes in the way the story is told, right? And I'm not going to see that only with click bait, you know, headlines or tracking open rates, right? She was adamant about it. Um, so to me, it was, a, it was just a strong example of someone who's clearly having amazing success in changing hearts and minds, but her metrics are not business metrics. That I think is a, a a really great place to leave it. As we get to the top of the half hour, Jean, how have you kept safe and sane during this last year and a half of shutdowns and shelter in place? Any TV series or uh, books that you've read or Netflix uh, that you've binge watched that you'd recommend to us? <laughs> Um, well, I'm, I'm a sports person. So sports, thankfully, is always on. And so that has been helpful. And, and, and uh, following my, my Giants this year has been a relief after a shortened season last year. Um, I actually went backwards and watched old series that I had never watched, uh, like Mad Men and the Bureau and things that people had already talked about. Um, so I caught up. I didn't, I didn't get ahead. So it's a question I used to ask guests at the very start of this podcast two or three years ago, um, and I'm going to try it on you and see how it see how it turns out. What's your favorite Pet Shop Boys song? <laughs> um, I can't answer that question, even though I'm a child of the '80s, and <sighs> I I don't know one by name. I would be able oh. to identify probably ten. But I don't know one by name. If you gave me the first two words, maybe I would be able to fill in the blank. Wow. Wow. I, do you I know, know, this is definitely coming back. This is definitely coming back as a question because this is this gives an indication of uh, where we are as different <laughs> cultures. Um, uh, West End Girls. OK. So, um, I mean, of course, I know West. that song. I know that song. Yeah. Well, excellent. So West End Girls it is. Yes. Jean. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for every, everything that you do. You are a shot in the arm. Thanks, Ben. It was fun to talk with you. Well, thanks again to Jean Bell. And by the way, I do strongly recommend her book, Nonprofit Sustainability, Making Strategic Decisions for Financial Viability. If you are interested in any way in strengthening the nonprofit contribution to social change and justice, Thanks also to Eric Aspera, our director and producer. And finally, thanks to you. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other show, don't hesitate to contact us. You can find us on our website, www.ashotinthearmpodcast.com. And you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. 